Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. I try to think of ways of explaining to young people how to think about an equity portfolio. So one of the ones I have was, you know, get a piece of paper out, put a line down the middle, on the left-hand side, put down all the companies and all the things in your life that you couldn't do without. And then think the cost of having all those things, if you were to double the cost, which ones would you stick with? And then to the right, write down the names of all the stocks, the publicly traded companies that sell those products. And that's the essence of your portfolio. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How do you construct a portfolio like you'd choose a sports team? And why is it that something everyone hates can still go up in value? Joining me today in the search for meaningful market fulfilment is Will Nutting. G'day, Will. G'day, Phil. <laughs> you, you almost said it like almost like an Australian. That was very good, Will. <laughs> Will is the founder and CEO of Nutstuff, a no-nonsense three-times-a-week newsletter that helps readers through the noise and identify investment opportunities. It offers in-depth research and data on global events and how they influence financial markets. So tell us a bit about your background story, which I believe is involves financial services industry and the military. So Phil, thanks. Great to be here. Great to chat to you. The background of Nutstuff came from my nearly 30 years of working in the equity world. And I was, you know, someone I think coined the concept of equities as stories and bonds as math. And so 30 years of telling stories. And I never went to university. I left school. I traveled. I, I messed around in the world a bit. And then I ended up falling into the equity world. And I started in the world of Japanese equities, which is kind of interesting 
as we see what's going on in Japan. Even today, I think the yen is sitting 36-year highs. That's another thing we can talk about later. But as I say, I, I fell into the equity world. And as I worked through a bunch of investment banks, and I used to deliver equity research to clients, increasingly, I found that equity research was increasingly influenced by editors. It was increasingly influenced by compliance people. And it just became so sanitized that I was never sure that it had a tangible investable conclusion. And so eventually I came out about three, four years ago. I, my last place I worked was Stiefel Nicholas in London, which is a US regional house. And I set up on my own and I'd always written something called nut stuff inside equity research firms, which is kind of my view and my take on what was going on in the world. And so this is the natural extension of that. And what I try to do is I, I don't think of it as a newsletter, really. I think of it as a kind of a fact and conclusion letter, which maybe sounds a bit pompous, but it's trying to do the so what on what's going on in the world. It's trying to connect the macro, the geopolitics with the real world, which then connects into the financial world and asset allocation and also goes down to individual stock ideas and investment thematics, investment themes. I sort of think of myself as a proudly a non-graduate in terms of university, but I kind of look out the window. I believe in the elevator test on anything that I'm being pitched or pitching, I think it has to have joined up thinking and no babble speak. And I think when you combine all those things and you look at what's going on in the world and you have to have a portfolio that you have to take ownership of, which I publish every Monday, I think what that does is it forces you to have some investable conclusions. And I think in all honesty, that's probably quite a valuable asset to have at the moment. I think it's always interesting to reflect on research and analysis that a lot of the big broking houses and the research analysts come up with, because as you say, it's it's sanitized and it's often conflicted as well because the people that are doing this research out for their own interests in terms of their clients who are also the people and the companies that they're doing research on. I think it's really important to have your own individual views of things and take all of this research with a grain of salt, don't you? I think that's right. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate that I have access to an enormous amount of research, enormous amount of different views. Most of the big firms give a lot of their stuff away for free now or next to free. And so I think it's incredibly important, incredibly interesting to see how different firms approach different subjects. I also think it's interesting to look at the areas of the market that the big firms have given up on. And very often the areas of the fir the market that are not being looked at marries into the phenomena in equity markets especially in the US, I think, where you've got it's active versus passive investing. And I don't know what the real number is. I don't think anyone knows what the real number is. But I've heard the real number of active versus passive is something like, you know, it's 92% passive versus 8% active. And so when you then think about, you know, where people are and why we are in such a mega cap driven world, you know, I still think in the US, the S&P 400 and the smaller mid cap indexes are trading at 20 year lows. And they're trading at 20 years lows because it's all the money's going to the bucket of market cap and no money's going into the shot glass or the pint mug of market capitalization. And so I guess the question is, what's the catalyst to change that? And secondly, as I say, it's, you know, it's trying to find the areas of the market, to be honest, that I think that the world isn't looking at. And some of those examples I would give is cannabis and marijuana today, two and a half years ago, three years ago, we were picked up and we're talking about coal stocks. You couldn't find a coal analyst left on Wall Street despite the fact that you know the world was still addicted to and remained addicted to fossil fuels and coal. And so I think there are those pockets of opportunities and we try and find them, try and do some work on some rudimentary work on them. We're just trying to allude to some of these things. And, and that's what makes our job interesting. So I think, as I say, it's very interesting to look at what the competitive sell side is doing, but I think it's also incredibly important to also focus on where they're not focused. 
So you mentioned your research into global events and how they influence markets. What's your view of the current oversupply of global events? I think you've got to pick your spots. I think you and I talked before we came on this, you know, that uh, there are many other people more qualified to talk about in the Middle East than me. I think it's the so what and the conclusions. I think the overall thematic that I see at the moment is, it wasn't my original theme. I think it came from Kirill Sokolov. And it was a description of the rise of the oppressed and the revenge of the colonized. And I think when you add to that the notion that we're moving from a, a, a unipolar world to a multipolar world, and you look at the fact that most politics, especially Western politics, is based on a world of free money, which we've had for the last 20 years, a world of what's happened and worked for the last 40 years, without, I think, giving enough acknowledgement to the fact that the Middle East has changed, the Eurasia has changed inexorably, China has changed, the US has changed, societies in Europe have changed, demographics has changed. And I think, therefore, when I look at the oversupply of all the macro stuff, the spots that I'm trying to pick are, how does the world convert from a unipolar to a multipolar world? How do we get our heads around not starving the energy bridge from the old world to the new world capital? Are we going to get revolution or resolution to the things that are going on at the moment in the Middle East? You know, and then I think it's even more simple things than that, which is, you know, where is all the market cap? Asset allocation, fund managers, IRAs, 401ks, retirement funds, private clients, stockbrokers, all the people that you speak to, you know, it seems to me that they are still betting everything that's worked for the last 20 or 30 years, it's going to continue to work in the same way. And politicians are doing the same thing. You know, politicians, the US still thinks that sailing a carrier group into the Gulf is going to strike as much fear into the hearts of people as it did in 1991. And as I say, others are better qualified to analyze the difference in warfare and the difference in defense platforms and drones versus F-22s and F-35s. But I think, as I say, some of those bigger thematics are really, really important things to consider. And that's the stuff I spend my time looking at. So this leads you to believe that to generate better returns, you need to understand the psychology behind the world and how it works. Tell us about that. Because it's almost like you've got the world on the couch now, haven't you? Yeah, I'm like, what is it? I mean, it's think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Think of that triangle of needs, you know, and then think about how when you come off a, a binge of free money, when you've been buying lottery tickets, when you've ended up with an incredibly indebted, incredibly entitled society that's addicted to government spending, and you think about where that focus takes you, it takes you to the top end of the pyramid. And the top end of the pyramid is all the stuff that the fang stocks sell. You know, it's people call it woke or it's it's the indulgences and all the things that I think are some nonsense and some boils down to just good manners and respect to people being having differences of opinion on things. But the reality is that we sort of forgot the bottom end of the pyramid of needs and the pyramid almost got rotated. And I think what we're now doing is from a stock market perspective and a societal perspective. I think the pyramid is now back with the point upwards. And I think we're just trying to get our heads around the fact that actually, you know, 5% of the S&P's weight sitting in energy and 30% plus sitting in a bunch of companies that, you know, on the whole, maybe sell productivity, maybe will sell the AI solutions of the future, but also encourage young people to waste an enormous amount of time and take away productivity. I think that disconnect is going to in some shape or form, meet somewhere in the middle. And so I think from an investment perspective, and you ask me, with money costing something, whether it's return to positive real rates, 
you know, Stan Druckermiller was out this week, you know, saying the system doesn't work. You know, when you look at the debt that's being created, you look at where, what the trajectory of debt is, the Western capitalist system cannot continue to work in the system. And so I think the opportunity is trying to think about what next, what if, looking again, as I say, at the Maslow's pyramid of needs and trying to use that as an analogy to understand what the opportunities in markets, sectors and themes are. We've actually covered that on the podcast quite a bit, the amount of debt that's being created by Western governments and including the United States as well. And, you know, it's an an insane amount of debt and they can keep on printing money. But do you think that inflation is a secular theme that's going to be with us for a long time because of this money printing process? Well, I mean, I always struggle to think about things in, in our personal lives that cost less. And it's quite difficult to find much deflation in our individual lives, you know. And I think we forget... My father's 88 years old and I constantly have conversations with him and he reminds me about what the cost of money, where inflation was and how you know, society and economies function entirely normally with 8 or 9% money. But of course, 8 or 9% money doesn't work when you have the degree of debt that you have in the economy that we have today. So I think that to a degree, that's the problem we have. So just taking that on board, what are the kind of themes do you think are worth investing in at the moment? What are you looking at? I can say again, to me, it's, again, I go back to the energy bridge and I look at the the fact that I think we starve parts of the economy that we need to keep alive in order to get us to the other side of the chasm. So I think about coal, I think about oil, you know, I think about the North Sea. I thought about exploration and production, you know, in, in the North Sea. And as I say, of course, I think, you know, if we're sitting down with our children, we're all able to understand and want to get to a world of carbon neutral or certainly you know, we want to abuse the planet less than the planet is being abused. Although I I think I subscribe to the notion that the planet's a little bit like babies, you know, which is, I think they're reasonably human proof. And so I think, as I say, I, I worry more about the human race than I worry about the planet long term. I think the planet will be able to heal itself and survive. So I mean, I think I look at that, I think to go back again, when I think about ESG and I look at the kind of two trillion or so of, of, of assets flowed into ESG, I think the next iteration of the GSG is going to be much more commonsensical. I thought about ESG, who should be rewarded in the ESG world. A bit like looking at a school where you get the prize giving, giving the best performing prize to the goody two-shoes child who was a goody two-shoes from day one and stayed a goody two-shoes was pointless. The most valuable prize was to be given to the worst offender, the most badly behaved child who then became the, the most improved child. And what we've done is we've rewarded all these green companies that were already green from their inception. They were created under green mandates. And actually what we should have done is we looked at all the brown companies that were serial offenders, but actually then were taking on board what they needed to do to become better actors in this new world. And so I think there's going to be a really you know, seminal change in the way we look at ESG investing. And I think that's going to be immensely positive. So I think that the ExxonMobil's the Occidentals, some of the fertilizer companies, and all the companies that feed into them, I think are potentially actually going to get re-rated under this basis. And I think there will be an expansion of buyers because I think that some of these ESG mandates will be expanded in order to to take into the fact that they'll be able to I don't think coal will ever will, will ever get included in that because I think, you know, it's too far down the line. But as I say, I think I think on oil and gas, I think is also interesting. And then I think, you know, some of the other themes I come to mind is I think we've got so obsessed by indexes and we look at the index weights, you look at the constraints of index weights. And I sort of almost like to think about countries 
rather than indexes. And I think you have to look around the world and try and work out who the winning countries are going to be. You know, is Norway going to be a winning country because ultimately they will be able to provide some of the cleanest gas in the world for the foreseeable future? And that's exactly what Europe needs with what we've seen with, you know, Russia, Ukraine, et cetera. Does that mean a significant re-rating for the Norwegian economy? One of the things I do is I spend quite a lot of time traveling. And I travel not just because I like traveling, but also, you know, this year I've been in, I was in Namibia, I was in Central Africa, I was in South Africa a bit. I then traveled out to Eurasia, I was in Uzbekistan, I was in Kyrgyzstan. And the reason I do that is to try and go and just explore interesting places, meet government ministers, meet business people, and just try and get a sense as to, you know, what the delta is in some of these economies. And what you find in a lot of these places is, you know, incredible demographics, you know, formerly toxic political environments. In the case of Kyrgyzstan, obviously part of former Soviet Union, come out of this and with, you know, incredible opportunities. And so when I then look at, there's a guy who I speak to describes that as a sort of the fertile new crescent. And I think the fertile new crescent of Eurasia, it is fascinating. And I think you have to look at that from the perspective of, of maybe ETFs or maybe just, you know, country specific exposure. I'm sure the other thematics that I think come to mind, I guess those would be the key ones. And then I think the other thing is when I look at the geopolitics of investing, you know, it's what is priced for perfection and what is priced for death, you know, and I think trying to look at some of the derivatives on what if we to get a peace dividend in Ukraine, you know, if Mr. Zelensky is not able to negotiate, then maybe Mr. Zelensky has to go and someone else has to come in and negotiate. But peace, we've got to try and get peace in some shape or form in Ukraine. If we were to get that peace dividend, how would that translate into an equity investment? Does that mean a the former Vimplecom, Vion, for example, you know, which is the cheapest mobile phone provider in the world, two, over 200 million customers, you know, tiny ARPUs, huge opportunity, actually been a good stock this year so far, but I think still has, you know, massive opportunities. So I think there are some really good special situation ideas, you know, that I think of that might be beneficiaries of a sudden change in geopolitics. What was the name of that stock again? The mobile phone? Vion, V-E-O-N. It was the former Vimplecom. And then mm-hmm. they sold their Russian assets and they now have a huge amount of mobile assets across a lot of very toxic places. But I think what we know is that the most important asset to anybody at the moment is their mobile phone. Just a little bit of a sidebar here. I'm a great fan of, do you know the Peter Frankopan books, The Silk Roads? Yeah, I know, I, I, thought of, I know of Peter and I have some great friends of mine that are great friends of his. And so I followed him and read and, and, and spent a lot of time looking at it. No, it's just interesting to reflect on that book and how you can look at world history from a Central Asian or Eurasian point of view rather than the traditional European point of view and how much perspective it gives you on how history has developed and also those kind of geopolitical imperatives that are really created out of Central Asia that we often don't even think about. I think that's right. And I think when you marry the demographics and the economic vibrance with what is under the ground and with what we need as a result of our desire to pursue a you know carbon neutrality net zero etc you know if we're going to get to the stage that we're going to get to then it's obviously incredibly important that you know we have access to the rare earth materials the lithium the copper etc etc and so i think when you look at the demographics and you look at the population shift you just think simplistically about you know 
know, where's the demographic center of the world? And it's undoubtedly moved east. And arguably, it probably is somewhere between Singapore and the Middle East, I guess. So I think you're right. I think when you back up and you think about it, that kind of focuses your mind on, you know, where the center of the world is from that perspective. Mm. And also, interestingly, I'm doing this podcast and talking to several players in the energy space and investors in the energy space, how much now Europe is opening up exploration again for gas resources because, you know, they, they don't want to get their gas from Russia. So whereas in the past they were almost regulated out of existence, now there is exploration actually going on in the European continent itself. Yeah, but I think it's needs must, isn't it? That's hugely exciting. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Investing in shares can be fun, but the paperwork isn't. My investing's been transformed since using ShareSite, the best portfolio tracking tool for investing. My portfolios are on ShareSite, and whenever I buy or sell, the trades are automatically recorded. I can see the dividends I'm receiving, and it helps me to work out my asset allocation. ShareSite are extending a special offer to listeners of this podcast, four months free on an annual premium plan. There's a seven-day free trial where you can experience the full power of ShareSite portfolio management. Go to ShareSite.com slash shares for beginners and sign up now for a free trial before taking advantage of four free months. That's ShareSite.com slash shares for beginners. I don't want to come across as being anti-ESG. It's just that there are geopolitical realities in play here, aren't, aren't there? Well, it goes back, as again, to, to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You, know, you, you need security. And I think we've all got back to, you know, it's a very real issue. And the last three weeks, has taught a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world, people are feeling unsafe and non-secure. And I think that's a hugely important thing. And, you know, I've done a lot of work on the defense stocks and we made some very good performance in defense stocks in the last couple of years. But actually, we cleared a lot of them out at the beginning of this year, not because I thought the world was going to become a, a more safe place, but because I felt that the trends in warfare, which I think I talked about at the beginning, warfare on the cheap and i think you know the potential risks to the big platform defense companies are that in fact you know some of these low-cost and you know these low-cost drones and such like are going to render some of these very expensive platforms obsolete so i just wanted to throw a quote of yours back at you which is something everyone loves can go down while something everyone hates may go up what's the lesson behind that quote well, I always think about the paradoxes of investing. It's contrarianism, isn't it, really? But I think the detail of the quote is, you know, when everyone loves something, it must go down. And when everyone hates something, it may go up. I think what I talked about earlier on was, was in the case of coal stocks. You know, everyone hated coal stocks. No one could invest in coal stocks. No Wall Street firm employed a coal analyst. In fact, when I was at Stiefel, I think we had the last coal analyst almost on the street and he was retired. At which stage you suddenly looked and said, is coal demand going down? No. Are the stocks hated? Yes. Are these stocks throwing off enough free cash flow they can start to pay down their debt, which is the reason that everyone disliked them in the first place? Yes. And you suddenly begin to connect the dots. And so we got lucky, smart, lucky, whatever it was. And, you know, we were buying 
CEIX and Peabody, you know, incredibly low prices and they've been 10, 15, 10x stories, you know, and I think it's trying to find some of the hated stocks and trying to find things that are hated for a good reason or trying to find things that are hated just because they've gone out of fashion or because the spotlight has just gone on to something else, you know. So tell us about your idea that a portfolio should be constructed like a sports team. So I think this goes, this sort of feeds into the, what nut stuff wants to do. The classic kind of nut stuff reader is either a Sierra and experienced fund manager who wants a kind of a good read that covers quite a lot of bandwidth on a reasonably regular basis that means that he sort of picks up on things that maybe you or he or she have, haven't picked up on. And the flip side of it too is I want lots of young people to get excited about the stock market. And I want them to feel, especially in an inflationary environment where we talked earlier on having higher structural inflation, you know, at the end of the day, if you make any money, you have any money or inherit any money, the kind of key question is how do I double my money in the next 10 years? You know, and maybe double your money quicker by investing in crypto or, or investing in something else, betting on the horses. But if you can compound your money at 7% and double your money in 10 years, and my point is equities has been the way to do that. And I still think equities is the way to do that. And so what I try to do is I try to think of ways of explaining to young people how to think about an equity portfolio. So one of the ones I have was, you know, get a piece of paper out, put a line down the middle on the left-hand side, put down all the companies and all the things in your life that you couldn't do that. And then think the cost of having all those things, if you were to double the cost, which ones would you stick with? And then to the right, write down the names of all the stocks, the publicly traded companies that sell those products. And that's the essence of your portfolio, right? To go to your question about the football team, is, you know, football, you have offense, defense, goalkeeper. And so when I think about a portfolio construction, I think, you know, start with the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper is kind of gold and arguably actually crypto, which is he or she is never going to be your highest paid player, but you're not going to play without a goalkeeper. So gold, crypto, whether it be an ETF or what have you, is your goalkeeper. Then you kind of have your defense, which traditionally was your dividend paying stocks. Now, I think you have to think about that now in a world of 5% rates, you know, a six, 7% equity yield just is not that exciting anymore. You know, when rates were zero, that was exciting. So they're probably your lower risk, they're your lower risk stocks. You then have your midfield, which is your classic kind of growth stocks. And then your front row was traditionally your highest growth, your NVIDIAs, your, you know, your Googles, your Netflixes, your, your AI stocks or whatever it was. You know, I think for the last, in the middle of your team and on the front end now, you know, you actually got to have some fairly heavyweight, you know, cheap players. And so the traditional way of thinking about the sports team, you know, I think it's more that I think is actually an interesting exercise on thinking about that sports team analogy and thinking about how with the end of the era of free money ending and more of a value bias and a free cash flow bias and a shorter duration bias coming into asset allocation, how that actually makes you think differently about the sports team. And it's probably something inspired me to have a look at it, you know, maybe write something on how a sports team has changed. Are there, are there any other suggestions you've got for young people to become interested in markets? Because it is important, even if you're not going to be investing in individual companies, it is always worthwhile knowing about your finances, how your money is used, where your money is invested, to have actually some understanding of markets and how they work. Well, I think, you know, read as much as you can about what's going on in the world. Try and identify people that write readable 
sensible analysis and sensible thoughts about you know connecting the macro and and stocks and then try and run a paper portfolio try and find a teenager that doesn't buy training shoes or you know sports shoes you know and go and read phil knight and nike's biography and then look at why nike was a success that it was and look at why nike has ended up having some of the problems it has and some of it goes down to the nonsense that we discussed where they started chasing rainbows and chasing a lot of things that they shouldn't have chased and then look at the opportunity that came from on running you know swiss company roger federer put some money into it you know hugely exciting hugely interesting how has a company like on running come up behind them you know there isn't anyone there that probably hasn't seen you know our generation all buy these on shoes and try to do some real world examples of success stories that kind of plateaued and then the opportunity that was created for another company to come up underneath it you know look at victoria's secret you know victoria's secret was this unbelievable success story you know there wasn't a fund manager on wall street that didn't want to be invited to the victoria's secret one way so in central park or london but also look at how victoria's secret lost they kind of they disappeared inside themselves and they lost sight of what they were and who their customer was and so consequently you know this is a stock that went from the six or seven billion dollar valuation back to a billion dollar valuation you know now with the uk ceo i think they're healing and they are going back to basics and the world has changed and so they have to do things differently but i think they're realizing that actually like a lot of companies they didn't really appreciate why they were as good as what they were and they allowed a younger generation of management to come into the company and persuade them to do things differently that detracted from their core excellence and expertise. And so I think for young people, the great thing about it, as I say, I go back to what I said originally, which is that equities are stories and bonds are maths. So for the mathematicians, the bonds and the complicated stuff is super interesting. For, for young people, on the basis of stories, find stories that you're interested in. Find areas of the market that you're interested in, whether it be sports, whether it be you know music, whether it be media and entertainment. If you do that as a matrix, on that matrix, you will be able to find privately traded companies. And you can ultimately build a matrix that enables you to do what I tried to do, which is to take the geopolitics and the macro of the world and then connect it to the financial world and then connect it into a bunch of investment themes that then produces a portfolio of best of breed stocks. And it's fun. I've done it for a long time and, and it, it makes that whole thing is fascinating. It's like being a restaurant critic that you can sit and discuss the fashions of food. And ultimately, what I want to know from the restaurant critic is, what restaurant should I eat in? You know, who's the best chef? What restaurant should I eat in? And I always wanted to tell me what I should order off the menu. You know, what's the best pudding and what's the best starter and, and such. And very few restaurant critics will do that. You know, they'll hide behind the generalist commentary. And so I think for young people, you know, just get into the weeds and use some real world examples and test it out on the stock market. And the trouble with stories is that people do love hearing stories, but people can persuade themselves of wrong investments, throw their money down the sinkhole just because they believe in a story. I mean, we hear it all the time with, you know, energy metals of the future, for example, and people tell themselves that these have to go up. How would you suggest people guard against hearing a story and then losing money because they believe in it so much? I mean, I think the numbers tell you a lot. So when you look at growth businesses, it's trying to understand what the total adjustable market is. You know, how early are they in their journey? 
what is it going to cost them to get from where they are to commercial production? And at that stage, I think it's one of the reasons why mid-cap and small-cap is having such a tough time at the moment is because a lot of small-cap companies and mid-cap companies are, they may be hyper-growth, but in a lot of cases, they need funding on that journey. And if they need funding on that journey, people need to get a sense that the milestones you know, are there in order for them to justify the funding. And of course, I'm afraid I have an enormous amount of cynicism at this stage of the cycle in private equity and what's going on with private equity and the marking of their own homework and the perpetual kind of marking up seems of portfolios, which flies in the face of what's going on with public markets. And so I think that for a lot of these smaller companies that are on this kind of early in their journey, I think you need to rely a little bit more on some external analysis and industry analysis. And I think you've got to be careful. You've got to be especially careful in a world where money is costing what money costs. You know, I think this is a much easier space to make money in where money was free. We're now in a world of businesses that have got to stand on their own two feet without government subsidy, you know, free cash flow, replacement cost of assets, return on assets. You know, this is ROE, not enterprise value to EBITDA. And if I'm talking double Dutch, then I think, you know, that's the stuff that I think people need to be careful of. So we've been promised them some stock tips for Q4 2023. What are those? Well, I think we covered a couple already. My kind of call option for some peace in some of the more volatile parts of the world is still Vion, which I've discussed as as a mobile operator with very low ARPU, with huge footprint and huge opportunity and huge upside. So I think that's sorry. What is what is what is ARPU? Sorry, is the average revenue per user? So five, six, seven dollar average revenue per user is you know clearly going up as obviously. Utilization goes up, data goes up. And so I think, you know, this is the most lowly valued mobile operation in the world. So I think that's one that I think is, you know, worth, it's up 16% this year. It's not up off the charts. I think that on my thematic of countries, not indexes, I like the opportunity that I see in Latin America. And I think Latin America with, in the case of Brazil, a pretty good central bank that's doing the right thing on rates. And I think, you know, with a big commodity type culture, you know, I still like Mercado Libre. I still like Petrobras, you know, best of breed companies. Uranium has been a big focus of mine for two years. The stocks are only just really beginning to work properly now. And and I just look at this as a classic. Well, I think the total uranium space, probably even with the moves we've had in the last few days, it's probably $60 billion. So relatively speaking, it, trying to find a mega cap stock there is, is almost impossible. But I think the fast money is moving into it. This is the energy bridge this is baseload power. This is a classic kind of supply-demand story. You can build a model on uranium supply and demand fairly effectively. And I think the cure for a high price is going to be a high price. And I think production will will ramp at significantly higher prices, in which case, a lot of the, you know, they own the raw commodity, but you can also own companies like Cameco is the big company in the space. You can also own, there's ETFs, there's UEC, which I think has, you know, got the unedged production, which is the one that we would own. I still like technology, you know, and I think one of the thematic that I think is still, you know, super interesting is capital expenditure in the US, this whole capital spending cycle that's going to happen. One of the things I think is fascinating is the Inflation Reduction Act. And the Inflation Reduction Act is the reshoring, it's the investment spending that's needed in infrastructure in the United States. And I think the numbers I've seen is $365 billion and it's uncapped. I think the Marshall Plan after the war was 2% of GDP. This could be 5% of GDP. 
So when I think of that, and I think of that being enacted, it makes me think that the Exxon Mobiles and Occidentals, the Fleur Systems, BWXT, these are all going to be you know excellent companies to own right here in the cycle. I think these are you know, these to me are the stalwarts. These are my midfield in my soccer team of the portfolio. I've talked about marijuana and cannabis. My glib comment is that in Western societies, people are going to need to smoke a lot more cannabis to deal with a lot of the things that we're having to face. And I think we're going to end up with a significantly more friendly political environment to cannabis and marijuana. There's ETFs. There's a bunch of companies that I've talked about, which you know, I'm very happy to share with them in my letter. We have some fairly significant bets, and I still want to run these significant bets in uh, things, stocks like Frontline, which is John Fredrickson, who done the reasonable deal in with tankers and ships. Yeah, I think these tanker fleets become increasingly valuable and the pricing is super strong. Tidewater, Weatherford and Deep Wind in the offshore space, Valaris in the offshore space. And then I also thought up, I think there's an interesting, a couple of interesting plays in Norway. So that would be, you know, just a few kind of ideas that we would focus on. I still think BAE Systems is probably the best of breed defense stock, probably is due a significant upgrade. I like some of the UK, very, very cheap, special situation, UK retail company. We have a couple of special set healthcare names, a company called Cardiol, which I think is fascinating, which is dealing with pericarditis and myocarditis, which is that come from obesity, diabetes, and also from the aftermath of, of vaccines. So, you know, probably a dozen or so stocks that I think are, will be the bedrock of what we're doing. And then I think in terms of mega cap space, you know, I think Google is still the one of the seven that I would own on, I still think, you know, Google and paid search. I think Google will still benefit probably massively from AI. And then thought of Intel, which I haven't owned for a long time. But I think Intel here is probably also a massive beneficiary of the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think if economic nationalism is a strong ongoing thematic, then the US government is going to mandate that Intel has to be successful. And Intel, of course, is, a, is you think of Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor, and you know we haven't really talked about China, but I think you know Intel's probably a reasonably good bet. It's very cheap. Still, I think, fairly under-owned, and I think you know, probably interesting. That's quite a buffet, Will. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. And yeah. of course, these are not recommendations to buy. Do your own research, of course. You know, of course, you've got to absolutely. actually understand what you're investing in. Absolutely, and I sort of feel like I've skimmed over these things. But as I say, I think what hopefully people will see if they subscribe to that stuff is they'll see that, you know, we, I make no apologies. We, there's quite a lot of repetition, but I don't really like changing my mind the whole time. It, it always used to annoy me as an institutional sales guy, you know, someone says, what's your idea of, you know, your idea of the day or the idea of the week? You know, I don't have good ideas the whole time. Mm. And I wish I did. But as I say, I think once we have the ideas, what we like to try and do is to run a narrative on them and find out whether things have changed or not. But as I say, there are you know we, the buy and sell cases on things that we like and we don't are uh, fairly simple and well articulated. So, Will, how can people find out more about you and that stuff? Well, we're in all the usual Twitter and you know, Twitter sphere and and all that. But simplistically, it's www.nutstuff.co.uk. I publish our fund report on a Monday with some commentary, not in a PDF. And that I normally write on a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Wednesday and a Friday. So then another two times a week. So 
it's not a once a week, you know, twice a month publication. This is, you know, a lot of work goes into this. We have a great team of people. I've got people, you know, in different parts of the globe inputting. And so, as I say, I think, you know, hopefully people will find it's a curated narrative, but it's got investable conclusions. And that's exactly where we wanted to take it to. Will Nutting, thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to learn more about investing for their future? 